If you could turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 39 to 56 this morning. We are continuing our Advent series, Light in the Darkness. And where we left off last week in the series in Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and told her that she would miraculously bear a child. And not just any child, he would be the son of God. And so Mary sort of asks, how's this going to happen? And Gabriel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then sort of as a proof of that, he says, and your older relative, Elizabeth, who is barren, she's going to conceive a son. And then Gabriel pro proclaims to kind of put an exclamation point on it. He says, nothing will be impossible for God. So let's see how this unfolds in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And Teresa Stanley is going to read for us. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Teresa. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for the reading of your word. We know that your word goes out and it does not return void. And so we have an expectant heart today, that your word would speak to us, that your word would transform us, that your word would reveal your son Jesus to us in new and exciting ways so that our faith would be built into him. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be active now in our presence and that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 1, God is declaring what he's going to do in bringing salvation through Jesus. And Jesus' entry into the world is going to be unique. It's going to be unprecedented. And really, it's going to be unlike anything else that's ever happened before. So, so far, we've had two angelic visions or, or visits by Gabriel, two miraculous conceptions, and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Something big is happening in God's kingdom, and he wants us to be aware of it. And Luke is drawing us into that story. 
And so today we have a story and a song. The story confirms that Mary is pregnant with the Lord and she is praised for her faith. And the song, oh, this beautiful song, is Mary's response of praise to God, her Savior. And so the main idea in our text here today is that like Mary, we should believe and praise God who does the impossible and who brings salvation to undeserving people. Let me say that again. Like Mary, we should believe and praise God who does the impossible and who brings salvation to undeserving people. So I have two points here this morning, and both of them are centered on who God is and what God does. And so the first point is the God of the impossible. So after Gabriel's visit, Mary quickly goes to Elizabeth's house. We don't know exactly where it is. Uh, Mary is in Nazareth. Elizabeth is somewhere in Judah. We're not exactly sure. It's probably out in the countryside. But out she goes, and she goes quickly. She wanted to go confirm what the angel had said about her relative. Elizabeth was pregnant. But see, the problem was, we know earlier in Luke's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 24, that Elizabeth had kept herself hidden. So nobody actually knew that Elizabeth was pregnant. And so Mary is on her way to go find find out, can this be? Is this really what's happening? And so in verse 41, we see that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, so Mary shows up at her house, comes in, and she greets her. When Elizabeth hears this, the baby in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps, right? And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, Luke isn't wasting a lot of time. He's getting right to the important stuff. The Holy Spirit is at work. God's on the move. Uh, Women who are old and past the uh, childbearing age are now, she's pregnant. And all of a sudden, the story just gains momentum. And we're drawn into that story. For in her sixth month, Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant, having conceived in her old age. This is the woman who was barren and now with child. We're to be amazed by that. And I'm sure Mary was amazed by that. And see, Elizabeth is pregnant not just with any child. The child, John, was to go before the Lord and to prepare a way for him. And we know from Gabriel that in chapter 1, verse 15, he said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Okay, so not just outside, not once he was born, but in the womb, he would already be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, John was never a rival to Jesus. Though he was older, he would prepare the way. He always understood that his role was to point to Jesus. And yet, here in this miraculous story, his ministry starts in the womb, leaping for joy at the arrival of Jesus, thus announcing to his mother who this special child was in Mary's womb. You see, God does the impossible, doesn't he? This is a miraculous story. And immediately from the outset, we are amazed at how God fulfills his plans and his his promises to people in ways that we don't always expect. Who would think that the older woman would bear a child? Who would think that a child leaping in the womb is filled with the Spirit? You see, when we come into God's kingdom and we understand his ways, we realize that his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And stories like this remind us that we serve a great God who oversees a great kingdom 
that in many ways is unsearchable and unknowable except for the wonderful fact that he reveals himself to us and he re reveals his ways to us as well. And so Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. And you might say, well, what does that mean? Well, typically the filling of the Spirit, the way that the Spirit worked in people's lives throughout Scripture is that the Holy Spirit works to fulfill God's plans and promises. So whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, you can be aware that something significant about what God's plans and purposes are about is coming to fruition. Because when the Spirit comes, the Spirit comes in power. The Spirit comes in wisdom. And here, it's seemingly, he comes in giving Elizabeth a word of knowledge. You see, she understood something that only could have come from God. She would have had no earthly way of knowing that Mary was pregnant, and much less that Mary was pregnant with the Lord, except for the fact that the Holy Spirit was on the move. The Holy Spirit spoke to her and gave her this word of knowledge. And in verse 42, it says, she exclaimed to Mary with a loud cry. So imagine this. So Mary comes in, hey, Elizabeth, and all of a sudden with a loud cry, with the baby having leapt in her womb, Elizabeth cries out, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now this is turning everything upside down. Mary came to confirm that Elizabeth was pregnant. But Elizabeth is the one declaring that Mary is pregnant. And since the encounter with Gabriel, the Holy Spirit has enabled Mary to conceive as promised. For she was told that the Spirit was going to come and bring about this pregnancy. And God, again, is doing the impossible, isn't he? It's interesting to note here that Elizabeth is the first human being to recognize the identity of the child as the Lord. See, all the other Lord references up to this point and around this passage are references to God as Father. And yet here she declares, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So anybody who was familiar with their Bible would have been sitting there going, what is going on here? She's calling this baby in Mary's womb the Lord, the same word that was used of God. And friends, this is no accident. Luke is clearly capturing an amazing, impossible moment where God is becoming a man. He's a fetus in the womb of Mary, and she's calling him my Lord. Oh, friends, this is amazing stuff. The human and the divine coming together in Christ. The virgin is now pregnant, and she's pregnant with the Son of God. And so Elizabeth declares Mary blessed. Why? Because she's some great person and she earned it and deserved it? No. No, Mary is blessed because she's carrying the Lord in her womb. And she's privileged and blessed to be the mother of God's son. And so Elizabeth blesses her. And she also blessed the child in her womb for she knew that he was the Lord. You see, God is doing the impossible by having his son become a man, born of a woman, and he's bringing the light to shine in the midst of the darkness.
Now, I don't know about you, but I like how it's made shows, like Modern Marvels. Anybody like those shows? Kind of interesting. Sometimes it's just everyday items like clothing or how they make certain foods or musical instruments. I found the one on pencils quite interesting. I was like, I always wondered, how'd they get the lead inside the wood there? But sometimes it's really cool stuff like big earth-moving machines or skyscrapers. That's always a really fun one to watch. But I love seeing all the behind stuff, uh, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on. Because once you see what really happens and how it all works, the end result is you're a lot more impressed, aren't you? And so I love seeing all that. I love seeing the details and the precision, the tools, the scale, both large and small. But I also love thinking about who created and designed these things. I thought, oh, how amazing and how gifted these people are. It really is awesome to behold many of these things. And when we come to our text here today, this is sort of like modern marvels, but on a very short scale. You see, these verses surrounding the arrival of Jesus, they don't give us all the details of how it's made, but it gives us enough details to be amazed at how God does the impossible. God surprises us. He He's astounding in the way that he does things. It's just mind-boggling what God is doing here in these passages. And we see enough to be impressed and amazed at how God does the impossible through the work of the Holy Spirit, who's fulfilling God's plans and promises that are ways that are both extraordinary and unexpected, aren't they? But the reality is, for you and I, God does the impossible all the time in our lives. We don't always see it as such because sometimes we're not even thinking about it that way. And sometimes we might know it for a second, but then we can at times quickly forget. And so I think we need to be thinking about how God is at work in our lives doing the impossible. And we need to train ourselves to see the impossible and to remember it and to give praise to God for it. You see, our lives are filled with evidence of God's grace. God's fingerprints in our lives where seemingly unsuspecting things happen and yet they're not accidents. Because we believe in a God who is sovereign. We believe in a God who is in control of all things. And the things that happen in our lives are intended by God to draw us closer to him and to bring him glory. Nothing is wasted in God's kingdom. And so we are in the presence of the miraculous all the time. Like, for instance, how many of us create the air that we breathe? Nobody, right? Who does that? God creates the air that we breathe. He sustains the earth that we live in. He's the one that provides for us both jobs and houses and food and friends and family. And all the good things that we have, they all come from God. But they're all things that we could not on our own provide for ourselves. It all has to originate somewhere with God the creator and the sustainer, the God who wonderfully keeps all things working together. And it works together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And I thought about where have I seen some of these marker points in my lives? Because let's, let's think about it. As you walk out the life of faith, there are just certain times in your life when you just know that you know that you encountered the greatness of God, right? 
And we don't have gazillions of them necessarily, but, but we have lots of them. And if we stop long enough and really think back about how our faith is molded and shaped, you'll go back pretty consistently to certain points in your life where you say, I learned a big lesson there. I learned something about God there that is never going to be taken away from me. And I thought about that in my own life, and I thought about two things, one quite small and one quite large, because I think they come in all different sizes, but they come all the time. The first one was when I was going to graduate school over in England. I had just become a Christian, and one of my great fears was that I was going to be all alone. Because going over to England, I didn't know people at the school, and I had never lived really far away from home. And so I was going over there. I was 25 years old, and I was, to be honest, I was afraid. I was a little bit uh, worried about what this was going to be like. And so I had just put my faith and trust in God, and I and I told God, hey, I'm afraid about this. And I felt like the Lord said, trust me. I'm going to watch over you. And I said, okay. So I'm flying over there, and I spend a couple of days, and then I go down to where I'm going to school. And as I'm carrying my trunk and my garment bag up to my room, one of the students that was helping the international students get to the rooms came up, and she said, hey, can I give you a hand with your stuff? And I said, sure, that'd be great. And as we start walking and talking, we start to talk about our families. And as we're talking about our families, we talk about our older brothers. And it turns out that our brothers were friends, having worked for the same missions organization in Israel years before. And as that story unfolded that day, because I called my brother, I said, oh, do you know this guy Webster? And, and he says, yeah, 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 we were in the place together and all this stuff. I tell you, that was one of those marker points in my life because here I was thousands of miles away from where I grew up, worried that I was going to be all alone. And God in his kindness brought somebody who actually knew my family or knew of my family. And in that moment, I knew there was never going to be any place I could go where God wouldn't be with me. It's a marker point. What are the marker points that you have in your lives? What are those pillars of faith that you have, that you hang on to when things are hard or difficult? Friends, we're called to know these things and to remember these things. So that was a small one, and yet it's been a big marker in my life, my whole, uh, all my Christian walk. Another big one happened when our daughter, and some of you have heard about our daughter recent surgeries, but actually 30 years ago, she had her first open heart surgery. We had just adopted her. She was three years old. She grew up in a Romanian orphanage. Uh, and she needed the surgery pretty soon, but the surgery was going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And my wife and I, I was working for World Vision at the time, we had scraped together about $12,000. And the bill was literally going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in God's kindness one night at a dinner with some friends in Romania, uh, an American woman came down to the end of the table and she mentioned to us that she knew the president of Children's Hospital in San Diego, and would she mind if, or would we mind if she put in a good word for us? And to make a long story short, not too long after, I get a fax, so that's dating me pretty significantly. But there's enough of you out there that know what I'm talking about, so let's not get too humorous here. So I get this fax from the hospital that says, come and bring her. And I brought the text of it, and it says this. You see, hang on to stuff like this. It helps you remember. It says, the hospital agrees to accept $12,000 
plus any contributions that come in before Demetrius' surgery as full payment. In addition, <laughs> all physician services related to Demetrius' surgery and hospitalization will be provided free of charge. I assure you, being a fairly new Christian, how I think about money and God's provision was significantly affected by the way that God did the impossible. Guys, you have these stories too. These are the stories that build our faith. It's no surprise that Scripture talks about Mary storing up all these things and pondering them in her heart. She was building up, as Spurgeon calls it, the checkbook of faith. She's building up things in her heart things that she knows to be true about God and his wondrous ways. And friends, as we read this passage and we read about the God of the impossible, may it stir our hearts and our minds to be remembering these faith markers in our lives so that our view of God would become bigger and bigger and bigger. You see, the point is God does the impossible. And he calls us to believe in him and trust him. No matter what road we're on, he wants us to look to him to trust him. And like Mary, we are to ponder these things in our hearts to build our faith, which is unlike what the Israelites were always in trouble for. What did they get in trouble for? They forgot God and they forgot his deliverance and then they chose to go their own way. And so there's a contrast here. We're not to do that. We're to see this wonderful example in Mary, this wonderful woman putting her faith and trust in God and believing in his promises. So let me ask you the question. Where have you seen God do the impossible in your life? And how often are you remembering it? So it's a simple set of questions there. But I want to remind you that whatever thing you're facing now in your life, whether it's financial troubles or physical or health or relational, friends, nothing will be impossible with God. And in the midst of our trials and our struggles, he wants us to turn to him. And so Mary believed in him, which leads us to her immediate response, and that's our second point. She responds to the God of her salvation. You see, Mary's heart was now filled with joy. And this song of praise in verses 46 to 55, it's a song of praise, not just singing, oh, this is so good, my life is great. No, it wasn't about, about her. This was a song of praise and it had an object. It was a song of praise to God. Mary was taking her eyes off herself and she was recognizing that, yes, I'm blessed, but who's the one that's doing the blessing? Well, it's this God who does the impossible, but it's also the God who brings salvation. And her song is saturated with Old Testament concepts and phrases. It's somewhat like Hannah's song in the Old Testament. But this song is really a humble contemplation of the mercies of God to save unlikely people, undeserving people. And this song reveals the character of God in three significant ways. The first one is how God uh, showed his saving grace in Mary's life. Look at verse 46. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now she's using the Lord to talk about God the Father. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Magnifies means to make large. She wanted a bigger view of God. 
She wanted to see God more fully, and that is what she's singing about. And this magnification is to be ongoing and constant. It's not just, yeah, I took one look, and then I said, great, and I moved on. No, she's talking about singing of a life where my soul magnifies in an ongoing, everlasting way the bigness and greatness of God, her Savior. You see, he is the object of her praise, the Lord and God my Savior. That was Hebrew, Hebrew parallelism, saying the same thing just in different ways. And yet now, because of Elizabeth's declaration, in a mysterious way, the baby that she's carrying in her womb is also the Lord. And so this story is going to unfold in Luke's gospel. And we're going to be amazed as it comes forth to see just the wisdom and kindness and mercy of God as the story of Jesus comes more onto display. And we understand more completely these plans and purposes of God because there's going to be a real, a real crazy thing that happens, and that is that this Lord actually ends up dying on a cross. And in one moment, we might think, well, that didn't go well. And yet on the third day, he rose from the dead, having defeated death and sin. See, God does amazing things. We have to just hold on to him as we walk through these lives because he's going to be doing amazing things around us all the time. And Mary understood that. Mary also understood her need to be saved. And unlike other denominations or particularly the Roman Catholics who thinks, uh, think that Mary was without sin. That, that's not what this text would say. No, she recognized that she needed a Savior. She was a sinner. And she praises God for what is happening, and she anticipates what is to come. He go, she goes on and she says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And this is a reference to her lowly position. She wasn't a person of stature. She wasn't somebody big and famous. No, she's very simple, out in the country. No. God had shown her grace and favor, not because of anything that she had done, but because he's merciful and kind. He's gracious. So she praises God. He looked on her humble estate, the humble estate of his servant, and here she was, a single woman, pregnant, she was still betrothed to Joseph all the way up to her birth. So she's got nine months to go of being uh, probably ridiculed, made fun of. And yet here she is singing a song of praise because she knows that God is the God of her salvation. And what's really neat is he sees her. She knows that he has looked upon her. And it's popular in our culture now to say, I see you. And that's a really important thing, to be seen and not just to be cast aside. And, and, and I'm grateful for that. It's a good thing to think about. And yet, the origins aren't in man. The origins are in God. This whole idea of being seen is because God sees. It doesn't start horizontally, us seeing each other. It starts with the fact that God sees. And this is the most important person to be seen by. And it gives her a sense of dignity. And she knows that he who is mighty has done great things for me. It's personalized. She knows that God is watching over her. And friends, just like Mary, we can sing that song too, can't we? Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ know that God sees us and he knows us and he's powerful and he has done great things for us. 
Oh, friends, this should cause joy to well up in our hearts. This is why she can say, I am blessed, because she's blessed by God. The second thing that she highlights is God's mercy for those who fear him. Look at verse 50. And it says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And God's mercy is the love that he shows to people who are in misery and distress. Anybody who needs a savior is in misery and distress because the outcome of our lives, the end of it will be death and alienation from God forever. And so all of humanity is in misery and distress. We are all under this same curse, the curse of sin. And yet, God shows mercy to those who are in misery. God sent Jesus to come and save his people, to die on a cross for their sins, to pay a penalty that you and I could not pay, but he paid it in full. And he paid it personally for you and for me. And so those who fear him will receive this mercy. Those who fear him means that those who stand in awe, those who see what God has truly done and stand amazed and who are willing to bow down to him reverentially in awe and in splendor and in wonder and look upon him and say, you are God and I am not. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation Friends, this offer of God's mercy is available to anyone here today who does, does not know Jesus Christ, who has not experienced God's salvation. It doesn't matter what condition you're in, how much you've messed up your life, or how twisted and convoluted things are. No, if you will come in the fear of the Lord and submit yourself to God, the promise of God is that he will have mercy on you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's a display of the character and the goodness of God. He'll look upon you and he'll embrace you and bring you into his family. If you will bow the knee to him, he will extend his mercy to you. And this kingdom that he invites us into is a kingdom like no other. This is the upside down kingdom. It says that with his strong arm, he scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty rulers from their thrones. He exalts the humble. He flips everything upside down. So much of what we see in the media and on our phones and in advertising all talks about a world that we can control, a world that we can design for our own good pleasure. And in many ways, we can, or at least we think we can. But at the end of the day, we really can't control our own lives and we can't control what happens to us and around us. But there's one who can. And his arm is strong. And he's mighty to save. And he will tear down the things of this world that are against his kingdom. And the things that build up his kingdom, humility, lowliness of spirit, these are the things that he will exalt and he will celebrate. And friends, this is the kingdom that we are invited into. The hungry get good things. The rich go away empty. You see, what happens is the powerful make themselves independent of God. But those who are lowly submit themselves to God. And Mary is singing about this. What a great God we have. 
And so let me ask you, where are you in need of God's mercy here today? What's going on in your life that's not going as planned and is causing pain or worry or suffering? Friends, do you believe that God will have mercy on you? Do you believe that you can go to him and cry out with all your tears and all your fears and all your worries and trust and know that this God will have mercy on you because you fear him and revere him? Friends, there's a wonderful invitation here today to not leave this place with your cares still stuffed inside. No, cast your cares upon him and he will show you mercy. And he will do this from generation to generation. He will do this time without end. And finally, the third thing that Mary sings about is God's faithfulness to his promises. See how these things build on, it, on themselves? She was aware of his saving grace in her life. She sees God's mercy for those who fear him. And then she ponders for a moment. She says, God is faithful to his promises. Look at verse 54. It says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so God's action through Jesus, the Messiah, reminds Mary of God's covenant promises, God's arrival in Jesus. And so God promised, she's referring to this, God promised to Abraham back in Genesis that that Abraham would be blessed and that his people would be a blessing to others and that he would have a people that would follow after him and they would be in a special place and that they would be in a covenant relationship with God who would rule and reign over them forever. And later on, God made a promise to King David that one of his offspring would rule and reign with an everlasting kingdom. And here now, with Jesus in her womb, Mary is singing this song, knowing that these promises are coming to pass. Gabriel had told her, he said, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, Mary knew the Bible. She knew the Old Testament scriptures. She knew that this was in reference to the Messiah. And Elizabeth has just told her, hey, the Lord is in you. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. And I love the fact that we make a big deal about Jesus in the manger. But actually, the more I studied this passage, I go, this is just amazing. Because even before the manger scene, we have God on full display. And it's already affecting Mary. The arrival of Jesus. And so Mary celebrates the God who is faithful to his promises. And she believes that Jesus will be the fulfillment of those promises. And so she sings. You know, people love to sing when good things happen. You go through the Bible, Moses sings a song after they safely get to the other side. Miriam sings a song. Deborah, Hannah... Zechariah, we're going to hear another song in another week or two. You know, we like to sing sometimes, like when a goal is scored for the World Cup and the team that you're rooting for. We sing. You go to sports things, and people sing their anthems and sing the different songs that come out of their hearts. And, and I think as we read through these passages, we have to ask ourselves, what's the song that God's put in our hearts? Do we have a song of joy that overflows rehearsing the goodness and greatness of God? The God of our salvation, the God who shows mercy, 
the God who is faithful to his covenant. Earlier I mentioned that we can see the fingerprints of God all around us, but we have to have eyes to see. We have to have the eyes of faith. We can't run through life too quickly because if we do, we're going to miss so much of the goodness and grace of God that's around us. And that goodness and grace of God that he intends for us to see is to cause us to praise him, but also to remind us and to build our faith in him. So slow down over these holidays. Stop and reflect Take some time to remember the goodness and greatness of God in your life. Look back to the marker points in your life that have built your faith so that as you move forward, new markers can be built as well. Where God increasingly shows you his goodness and his greatness. The God of salvation is worthy of our loudest and most fervent praise. If we're going to sing any song loudly, if we're going to sing any song regularly, it should be the song that God puts in our hearts that direct us to him, just like Mary did. And we praise him for our salvation, for mercy, for faithfulness. And most of all, we praise him for the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, who's now in the storyline of Luke, residing in Mary's womb. Oh, he's the God of the impossible, isn't he? But he's great and awesome. And it makes you want to read more of the story, doesn't it? Because this story has a glorious ending. The knowledge that we who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ will have our sins forgiven. We will be welcomed into the family of God. And we will know that we will be with God forever and ever. Not because of anything that we have done, but because God has shown us grace and mercy. Amen? So like Mary, we should believe and praise God who does the impossible and who brings salvation to undeserving people.